Welcome to Lit Sci Pod, the literature and science podcast, with your hosts, me, Dr. Laura Ludke, and Dr. Catherine Charlwood. We're not going to do a big introduction to this episode because this interview covers many of the core issues that Lit Sci Pod has been interested in from the start. We started this whole thing by thinking about how literature and science are divided in schools. That division, which starts so early, has real knock-on effects. And it does feel like we're reaching a crisis point. Increasingly, numbers of universities are downsizing humanities departments or excising them altogether. And what little funds were still the preserve of the creative arts degrees are set to be cut yet again. We're at a crisis of value. Is this what we would call peak crisis? Well, maybe, because what we set in place now pays off and plays out for a good few years at the very least, bringing with it all the attendant problems that come from sidelining the humanities. It's like trying to divide the right brain from the left brain. You need both for full functioning. So let's dive right into the interview. But first, so that it's not all bad news. Lit SciPod is pleased to announce that by the time you're listening to this episode, the Lit SciPod will be 50% vaccinated. Dr. Ashmita Rundhawa is a recent DPhil graduate of St. Cross College, University of Oxford. Congratulations! With a thesis entitled STEM and the Studio, Understanding the Role of Studio Schools in English Education. However, her first degree uh, was a BSc in Biomedical Engineering from Boston University in 2008, after which she worked in Research and Development, R&D, for six years. Leaping from formulation chemistry to STEM, that's science, technology, engineering and maths education, after having worked on programmes involving increasing diversity in STEM in schools, Ashmita received her master's from Boston University in 2015 in education policy. Having worked as a research assistant on several projects within the Faculty of Education at Oxford, she is currently the faculty's research officer. Ashmita has published several articles and papers on education reform, educational ethics, and employability skills. Welcome to Lit Pod, Ashmita. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Well, first, we'd like to invite you to take the B33 challenge. Now, I know that as a longtime listener of this podcast, you will be familiar with it, but can you please describe your research broadly, then in three points, and finally in three words? Okay. Um, so the three words was actually a really hard one when, when I was thinking about this. So, so we'll see how this goes over with, with the two of you and with listeners. So um, quite broadly, uh, my research, uh, I call myself a fledgling academic because as Catherine, you pointed out, I've just finished my diesel. Very, very, very excited about that. Still not used to calling myself doctor, but, but it's kind of cool. Uh, and uh, so I'm very interested in the development of STEM skills what that means um, at the intersection of the labor market. Um, so really understanding are the skills that are being, development, uh, being developed really required? What is it that's missing? How is it being conceptualized? 
Um, I'm also incredibly interested in employability skills. And I'm interested in um, educational innovation, particularly at the secondary school level. Um, so broadly, those are the areas I've focused on over the last five years through the course of my DPhil. And uh, three sentences, I could actually uh, only think of two, so please forgive me. Policy memory is a thing. When I first started my DPhil, my supervisors used to tell me there just is no policy memory, particularly in the English context. And, you know, people keep bringing back and recycling old policy ideas and branding them as new things. So I've definitely learned that through my research, that policy memory is a true thing. Context is so incredibly important, uh, particularly when implementing and enacting uh, policy and education policy, really any policy. But given you know my background is in education policy, because you can't just pluck a particular program or a policy from a particular area and bring it into another country or another local area and expect it to work in exactly the same manner. Context is so, so key. So those are my two sentences. And then my three words uh, is innovation is hard. Oh, yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> will that will that will that do? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. It is. And also, I have I have a weird relationship with the word innovation because it's one of these terms that gets bandied around and sometimes we charge it with a lot of meaning which may or may not be there necessarily. No, and and I think what I've also found is that innovation doesn't have to be this big, grandiose, going to change the world overnight, right? Innovation can be something as simple as, let me start my school day at nine o'clock in the morning rather than at seven o'clock so that students get used to the idea of going to work, being at work from nine to five. Obviously, things have changed. The world of work is changing. You know, thank you, pandemic. There's, it could be as simple as that. So so I agree with you completely, Catherine. I think innovation has become such a weighted word uh, that, that it almost needs to be treated with a degree of caution. Well, and if we're constantly innovating, as you say, maybe we're not able to take stock of context, but equally make use of that policy memory. Because you can reinvent the wheel in policy, right? And you can sell it again and again and again, um, and you get nowhere. Think of the tire spinning in the mud. That's kind of, you know, what too much innovation or too much emphasis on innovation. Well, that little hamster wheel, right? You're constantly spinning. That little hamster's constantly spinning, but not necessarily going anywhere. And I feel like education policy in the UK has seen a lot of that over the years. So, uh, so yeah, so those, is, that, is, that a, is that a good setup for this podcast? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I particularly love that context has already come up because um, I published a, an article in a, a magazine for A-level students and teachers specifically called Context is All, trying to, to embed that idea of that science itself has a context and that's what's so frequently forgotten about that, you know, we kind of have this perception of empirical science as just arriving and there we go, fact done. And of course the history of science and the history of scientific ideas is, is much, much more complex. As, as Laura mentioned, I've been, I've been following your podcast for a little while now. And, you know, the first episode from this season itself, where you talk about the vaccine, Laura, you know, you brought up context again, you know, and a lot of it is vaccine development has happened. And, you know, people take into account in these study trials as much of the population that they can. But really, did they take into account 
uh, people from all minority ethnic communities? Were they able to recruit, you know, people from these uh, from Asian communities, from black communities? So when they're talking about vaccine efficiency, is it really in the context of all communities? Well, and all of that context is there for every policy decision, maybe with less risk and maybe less scrutiny, but all of that context needs to be considered. One of the difficulties of people understanding the secondary education system is that unless you're essentially a parent, a teacher or a student, you may know very little about it. So for the uninitiated, what is a studio school? Oh, I'm glad you asked me that question. And, and you know, Catherine, I'm, I'm going to be um, honest. You know, when I started my DPhil, I knew nothing about the secondary education system in England. You know, uh, you've, you, as you highlighted at the start of this, this podcast, uh, my background's in engineering. Studio schools, in essence, um, are 14 to 19 schools that exist in England. So it's a very English English context that we're talking about. They aren't in Scotland, they aren't in Wales, they aren't in Northern Ireland. Um, and they were set up in 2010, originally conceived a few years before that, but really came into, came into effect in 2010, uh, to try and blend academic learning and vocational learning all in one and build employability skills. So the idea was that the school would very much model like going to work. So as I mentioned, you know, uh, thinking about uh, the school day as a work day in its earliest conception of the model. The uh, and, I, and I should mention, this was an idea that was put together by two organizations called the Young Foundation and the Edge Foundation. And uh, they're the ones who actually put this idea together and, and trialed it as a pilot. And then it got picked up by, by the Department of Education. And um, the idea behind the schools was to really challenge how secondary education is approached, how uh, vocational education is approached for, for young, young people. As some people may or may not be aware, in England, you start secondary school at the age of 11. Um, this was different already because you were changing at the age of 14. There used to be middle schools in England at one point, but um, most local authorities have actually done away with that. There's still some uh, some areas that have it. So it, it was introducing a new transition point. It was introducing um, blended uh, a blended model of learning. Um, it was introducing the idea of developing uh, employability skills. It's almost like the whole kitchen sink was thrown into this into this particular uh, model of schooling. Uh, the other the other um, aspect that it tried to bring in was um, real cooperation between education and industry because uh, companies were actually uh, uh, part of the model was that the school would approach companies to see if they could offer genuine work experience opportunities to students. So you know. Uh, for those of you familiar with the English education system, when you're in secondary school and you do work experience, so I've been told, it's usually two weeks and it's not necessarily work experience. And sometimes it involves coffee making. If you're lucky, you'll be doing some things on spreadsheets. I'm sure I'm going to be corrected and people are going to be saying, that is not what my work experience is like. But again, anecdotally, this is this well, is what context is everything. Exactly. Right. And uh, but the idea was that that students would really be embedded in companies, um, would get to get a sense of, you know, long projects, seeing them sort of from conception to end working on uh, working on solving real problems. I don't say real world problems, because as one of the members of a studio school said to me, we're not trying to simulate real world. You can't simulate real. This is real. Like we're trying to make this as close to life and work as possible, which I thought was a really interesting way of opposing it. And then the last thing the schools were trying to do was sort of 
turn the delivery of the curriculum on its head, um, where the idea was to mm -hmm. deliver the, in, in, again, in its original conception, was to deliver the entire curriculum through project-based learning and through big ideas and through answering big questions, so really turning the delivery of the curriculum on its head. So, uh, so yeah, so studio schools almost had these six facets to them. Um, uh, they, they were meant to be small because in order to encourage this, uh, they felt that they needed to have a safe and inclusive environment. So for 14 to 19 year olds, it was only yeah. 300 students, which by English secondary school standards is, is quite small. Um, so, you know, so that they could have more one-to-one -one coaching in place. They could have more of that, you know, one-to-one -one development that you would normally see in a primary school, but you don't necessarily get in, um, in a secondary school. So yeah, that's studio schools in a very, very big nutshell. I mean, I guess in terms of transition points, though, I sort of, because I didn't do an 11 to 18 experience, it does worry me that the majority of people have this 11 to 18, no change. Exactly. And then suddenly you've got university, which is comparatively short if you go to university, and then the job turnover. But then you're navigating all this change, right? And, yeah. and some people get that change at 16 if they're going to a sixth form college, for instance. It can happen. Yeah, then... yeah. or going into an FE exactly. college. Or, exactly, yeah. some sort of yeah. post-16 specialist. The divisions matter, absolutely. Now, some of your research has touched on the important question of employability. And indeed, many question the purpose of education or learning that does not directly lead students to meaningful remunerative employment in their adult life, right? you know, why learn things if you're not going to get a job? Obviously, we in Lipside Pod might uh, have some questions about that. Um, we might have some ways of expanding, you know, that sort of very reductive idea of education. But yep. does interdisciplinarity have a role to play in employability in the context you've been studying? I think I, I, I'm really glad you, you bring this up, actually, because um, I'm going to use two examples here, one from my research in studio schools and two on, on some research that I've actually just finished, uh, which was uh, actually looking at humanities graduates and uh, sort of the development of narrative skills and what that means and, and things like that. So I'm going to draw on both a little bit. Um, so with the with the studio schools, what was really interesting to hear. Uh, so one of the things I should add is studio schools, because they were so closely linked to uh, employers and to, to companies um, were meant to be a reflection of the, the way they were conceived. They were meant to be a reflection of their local labor market, of the needs of the labor market. You know, what is it that, that companies in the area require? Um, and, you know, when, when you spoke to, to school leaders, one of the things that they really want, that they were really keen to mention, and I specifically focused on those schools that um, had a STEM focus, um, one of the things that they really were keen to focus, uh, highlight was that you can't be a scientist or engineer and say, I'm going to completely forget about English or communication or, you know, literature or uh, you can't. You absolutely cannot. Being a scientist means you also need to learn how to communicate and you also need to learn how to build a narrative around your particular discovery or your innovation. And how are you going to do that if you're not reading literature or if you're not focusing on language or, you know, and so they, they were very keen to highlight that as much as there was this emphasis on building these, you know, equipping these students with qualifications that were in STEM through the project-based learning, through the working with each other, through the learning how to communicate with one another and solving these big problems, they were 
they were touching on interdisciplinary issues because the world doesn't function in silos, not like school, which has subjects that are siloed, right? And the world isn't siloed. So one of the examples I can think of is um, in one of the studio schools, they had a VR suite, which I thought was amazing. I mean, imagine going to a secondary school and having a VR suite that you can go play in and learn how to code in. And, you know, just uh, uh, that, that blew my mind a little bit. It was actually being used by the English teachers to bring um, sort of ancient civilizations to life, you know, to bring Shakespeare to life, you know, to bring, you know, that particular topic that they were teaching. So, you know, students were thinking about the subjects in slightly more blurred ways, uh, which, which is, I think, what comes to the core of interdisciplinarity, where, where you start to see where, where you start to stop thinking about your subject matter in such a siloed way. Right. And so. And in higher education, and Laura, you're completely right. I think the narrative, um, not just in higher education, I think education policy narrative, as has been driven by the English government, by governments really all over the world, has been about employability. The Australian government essentially has said that if you're doing a STEM degree, it is in the nation's interest. And so it is more important than actually doing a humanities degree. And so your degree is almost now given a worth based on your sort of contribution back to back to the government, back to the nation. Right. So so there's this increased narrative on skill on, on degrees sort of having to have this employability focus, like how employable are you going to be? Right. And uh, and one of the things that was highlighted in this piece of research that I was talking about, uh, which is on uh, the, the de development of narrative skills with humanities graduates. We, we spoke with CEOs of FTSE 100 companies to try and understand how they conceptualize narrative skills and why they thought it was important. And one of the things that was starkly, starkly evident was that uh, there was a consensus among all of them that the education system in England, particularly, at the secondary and the tertiary levels is too siloed for the needs of the economy because you're forcing people to choose between the arts and humanities and STEM related subjects too early. But business requires both. Business requires you to actually be able to engage with, with all those disciplines. And so there's almost a call from that very, you know, from that very sector that requires employability skills and requires you to be employable to have more of a focus on interdisciplinarity. Yeah, and there's definitely been discussions here um, about measuring the worthiness of degrees based on, you know, what graduates might be earning from those degrees, which is, again, an instrumentalization. You're only worthwhile, your degree is only worthwhile if you then go on to earn a lot of money, um, which is, is distressing, to say the least, in terms of value. Well, and which in other studies is shown to that money is not... The, the biggest motivating factor for people, I mean, right? I think, I think I'm the poster child for that. I gave up an incredibly, incredibly well-paying job as an engineer for a multinational company to, to pursue sort of my passion and my interest, uh, which was on, on edu in education policy, you know, and uh, definitely, definitely not in it for the money, if anybody thinks... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and the other thing that, that is getting me about this is I can understand, in a way, I can see how the, the employment figures for 
national governments are a bit like their league tables, right? You're going to be judged as to whether or not you did a good job on the basis of how many people are in education, how many people are employed, and more importantly, how many aren't. You know, that neat category that kind of hangs heavy over the heads of of government ministers. But again, we've taken out the context by saying, you know, certain degrees are a passport to jobs, as if there isn't a context of that person who is the degree holder may go to interview and not be the right candidate. You know, there are other factors in play not just the degree subject that is on absolutely and i think employers are starting to at least from the research that that i've been involved in i think employers are starting to be more cognizant of that because you'll find that people from varying degrees are working as consultants you know you don't have to have a business degree to become a consultant you know there's there's all sorts of skills that arts and humanities graduates bring that stem graduates bring that that enables them to do that particular job so you know it's I think I think there's a degree of understanding that's coming from the employer side that said employers are constantly crying out for skill uh, that there's skill shortages and clearly there are some you know certain areas that there are definitely skill shortages but I think there is an understanding of this interdisciplinarity that is starting to build um, at least with employers well they might not term it as interdisciplinarity but I feel like the world of employment has been much more forward thinking than academia in terms of the value of multidisciplinary teams, yeah. you know, and they've seen that lead to commercial outcomes. They've seen that lead to innovation, yeah. that elusive term we were talking about before, yeah. Yeah. you know, that if you bring different thinkers together, yeah. something quite creative happens. It has definitely been the strangest experience moving from large teams working on getting a product out working together you know brainstorming ideas to all of a sudden working by yourself on some really big ideas you know um and i do miss that i really do um i think i think we are getting better with certain projects at at collaborating across disciplines but you know at least the default experience which it is meant to be has been has been a fairly fairly solo one (laughs) do you want to talk about how you got to where you are today because it's quite it's quite an interesting journey um sure uh can i blame ted talks i think i can uh somebody's got to Okay, so I was working for Procter & Gamble, essentially, um, and my job was to uh, develop the formulas as part of a team, um, but I led some of the formulation work on developing um, fairy liquids and fairy fairy tablets for your dishwashers and hand hand dishwashing needs. So anybody buying fairy, thank you very much for supporting my pension, Uh, as I say to everyone. thank you for my clean dishes (laughs) and um and as I was sort of uh and so and I was based in Newcastle and and I was incredibly lucky because with the company I got to move from Brussels to uh, Cincinnati Ohio to Newcastle and um in in England I should say because there are many Newcastles uh as I was sort of working in Newcastle um my my sister introduced me to this beautiful a uh, beautiful poem that was read out as part of a TED talk. And it was my first real introduction to TED talks. And I fell in love and I thought it was a brilliant way to bring people from different disciplines together in the same room, talking about these big ideas, you know, talking about issues, being creative in how they express yeah, how they express these ideas as well. And I actually found out about studio schools from TED talks. Um, Jeff Mulgan, who... Um, 
was at the Young Foundation at the time. He actually did a talk on studio schools. And I thought they were just fascinating because here was a school really trying to turn education on its head. And I found that mm. I found that really interesting. And um, and, you know, I grew up in India where education is very formal. It's very strict. It's very siloed. You know, at, at age 16, you decide whether you want to go into the arts, whether you want to go into the sciences, whether you want to go into commerce. So so sort of hearing about this school was incredibly interesting to me. And so. I, I myself got involved um, with TED um, in the sense I organized some TEDx events. And, and then it just sort of snowballed from there because I became incredibly passionate about understanding sort of the impact of policy on on pretty much everything. But really, the core came from education. Right. So I did a lot of outreach mm -hmm. activity uh, through through PNG uh, with with young students to sort of um, <clears throat> introduce them to science, make it seem like not such a scary thing, you know, a way where you show people this is what a scientist looks like, this is what you do, you know, uh, have them mix their own formulas in lab and take home their own cleaning products, just sort of fun, fun interactive days like that, which 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 was incredibly rewarding, and so decided to make the leap uh, into education, um, and went back to my alma mater, purely practical reasons got a full scholarship, was making the biggest leap I'd made in a while. <laughs> so, you know what, if, if it wasn't going to work out, <laughs> so then, you know, I hadn't lost anything in, in, the, in, in the process. Absolutely loved my experience and so decided to actually research these schools. Um, and I initially came at it very much from, could this be a way, could these schools be a way to encourage more women to pursue science and technology degrees could you know that that was my initial question yeah but then when I really got into it I realized and I started my defo in 2015 I realized no one had looked at the schools they'd been open for five years and no one had done any in-depth evaluative research on these schools to understand what they're about how were they conceived? How has policy shaped them? And so it's almost like I had to take a step back before I could answer this question, you know, of will this be, you know, potentially a way to get more women into, into science um, subjects or more interested to be, first of all, saying, what are these schools? What are they accomplishing? You know, so, so it, was, uh, it was quite an interesting um, journey into, into how my thesis got shaped as well. I don't necessarily think I was the typical doctoral student and every doctoral student's journey is different but um i worked all through my phd um so because i was coming with no background in education with no background in even the social sciences i mean i hadn't written anything longer than a two-page report for about eight years and here I was throwing myself into writing you know an 80,000 word thesis um, so you know learning those skills around um, right just writing skills you know developing developing my voice developing still learning you know um, learning how to phrase an argument learning how to you know put it put it forward in a convincing manner um, yeah I, you know so I decided to learn as much about the secondary school system, about education, about policy that I could. And my department was incredibly supportive because, um, and particularly my research center, because they encouraged me to actually get involved with other research projects to broaden my horizons beyond my DFIL thesis. And so, you know, my, um, my supervisors were both of the belief that you only learn by doing, right? And so, and so what was the best way for me to learn about this this area that I was interested in, other than 
by doing research and, mm. and gaining an understanding of what qualitative research looks like even. You know, what does that mean? How do you conduct an effective interview? Uh, things like that, you know. So so I've been involved in, in projects sort of all the way through, which has helped me build a more contextualized understanding. <laughs> No, I mean, it sounds like a fabulous experience. And yeah, quite. I, I do think that it's quite a different um, PhD experience from from most people's. But yeah, it deepens the understanding. I don't know, it sounds quite enviable, I have to say. <laughs> also exhausting, I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> there, were, there were days where I went, why did I do that to myself? Uh, but, but it's definitely been a, an incredible learning experience. So in in previous episodes of, of Lit SciPod, we very much lamented the way in which the formulation of academic subjects and timetables, indeed, in secondary education kind of canalizes students into isolated disciplines. So as, as you were saying, you know, you are either arts, humanities, social sciences or kind of sciences. Um, you could be in sports. You could be in sports or, you know, something more, te- you know, technical. True, but the point being that you're put into those, you're encouraged to make those choices that will define you at least for the next few years, unless you repeat and change direction. And so there's a, <laughs> you know, there is there's a kind of time payoff as as much as anything. And as we say, like in in England, we do this very young. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've had American colleagues before who are just astonished at the idea that you make those choices for GCSE when you're when you're still a child. You know, you, how are you supposed to know what lies ahead for you? The job that might be perfect for you may not even exist yet. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, and, and, and we've also acknowledged the way in which that particular sort of education excludes pupils who may not be or may not want to be on an academic path. Now, you were involved in developing the employability skills in studio schools in investigating the use of the CREATE framework report produced by the Centre on Skills, Mm. Knowledge and Organisational Performance and published by the EDGE Foundation, uh, which you've you've mentioned. So Ollie Newton, the executive director at the EDGE Foundation, highlighted the lack of governmental policy understanding of practically oriented forms of pedagogy particularly that established by the CREATE framework. So could you tell us a bit about that framework and about why practically oriented forms of pedagogy is so vital to improving student outcomes? Oh, now there's a million dollar question if there ever was one. So uh, the CREATE framework was um, essentially created <laughs> created for uh, for the studio schools by the studio schools, right? So um, as I said, the studio schools were uh, very much about developing employability skills uh, in their students. And one of the ways in which that they um, did this was through the development of what they called the CREATE framework. Um, CREATE's an acronym, uh, which stands for communication, uh, relating to others, enterprise, and it was a bit of an odd one. Applied thinking ended up becoming two separate sort of aspects uh, and then emotional intelligence and then that's how that how that particular uh, framework was um, was developed and for each of those aspects that I mentioned so say communication there were there were different skills that were the uh, let's call it a principle there were different skills that were outlined Mm -hmm. right so say for communication it was about being able to really select the ideas that you want to deliver so how are you going to you know, 
sort of encouraging students to think about if you're going to make an argument, what are the ideas that you're going to put forward? How are you going to choose them? And then organizing your thoughts. You know, how are you going to structure that particular speech or that, that, that argument that you're going to make? And then ultimately delivery, mm-hmm. right? So even just being able to, to project your voice, for example, or, you know, thinking about the audience because a three-minute pitch may not work in front of an academic audience, but that may be what you need in an elevator if you're trying to create a startup, right? So it's really trying to develop those those skills um, that are missing from a lot of the more academic um, learning that happens in most secondary schools, right? So so that that was the idea behind uh, behind the Create Framework. Now, the, the report that you refer to, um, in that report, one of the things that we found was that the CREATE framework was actually deployed across schools in a really varied manner. And part of that had to do with government policy, mm-hmm. really, um, and the emphasis on what counts as important. Because employability skills isn't something that you can give a grade to. It isn't something that you can assign, you know, where you can't quantify it in the same way that assessment works for a particular subject. So where schools, the student schools were being treated like every other school, they aren't they aren't special status. You know, they're they're state run schools. When schools are being compared on their academic performance, it leaves very little wiggle room for something like the development of employability skills. When Labour was in uh, was in power, sort of pre 2010, there was an emphasis on employability. There was an emphasis on enterprise. There was an emphasis on bringing these elements into secondary schools. But then, as there's been a shift, sort of with the coalition government and subsequent conservative governments, that emphasis on the development of employability skills has just waned. And there's this this intensified you know, with the introduction of the um, English baccalaureate, that there's only, uh, which is specific subjects that you take um, cl- uh, fall under what's called the English baccalaureate. Schools, when you when you go onto the government website, you can see how many students were entered for the English baccalaureate, which are not, and none of the technical subjects are in the English baccalaureate. Um, it's a very limited pool of subjects that count, right? So when there's this constant narrative that's coming from government, that says only certain subjects are important or count or only a certain way of learning or thinking is what matters. It becomes very hard to, to sort of stay the course. And so what we found was that the, the, the studio schools, it took a great deal of leadership and almost belief and conviction on behalf of this of the school leaders no this is what we think is important this is what we want to develop in our students we want them to be more than just the academic grades we want them to you know this this idea of developing the the whole child really right um that was required for them to actually continue this emphasis on on um, on employability skills well and and earlier you talked about project sort of project-based learning as Mm. well um, I, that was also very varied. <laughs> yeah. You, you've described sort of project-based learning as trying to turn the education system on its head. So I wondered what sort of outcomes do pupils have versus those who do not work with project-based learning? So, and again, it comes back to the students who are still being measured by the same tests 
they were being measured to the same accountability, you know, the same framework of accountability, like the percentage of students being entered for English or maths or, you know, and the number of students who obtain at least an A to C grade and, and things like those measures did not change. So even though these schools were trying to teach the entire curriculum in a manner that was different, they were still being tested in exactly the same way. For those familiar with the secondary school system, when you enter uh, <clears throat> sort of your, your pre-GCSE year, there's a lot of constant revision and focus on, on working towards the test and this is what exam questions are like. And when you've got schools that are trying to say, no, we really want you to approach these big problems and, and weave in elements of the curriculum through solving these big problems, it's a very different way of, of, of sort of getting students to think about learning, right? But they're being measured in exactly the same way. So the studio schools found, and it was really interesting, and at this point, between my thesis and this particular project, I think I've been into more than half of the studio schools that are open right now. So, uh, you know, I'm in an incredibly privileged play, uh, position to say this is pretty across the board, I would say, because more than half of the schools I've seen these same issues and same same themes crop up. What we found was um, in their first year that they were open, project-based learning was embraced by everybody everybody wanted to do it it wasn't a GCSE year right mm, so because yeah. students are joining at the age of 14 and also as these students then went into their GCSE year parents buy into this idea of project-based learning changed how's my child going to do in their GCSEs because that's going to determine you know what they're going to be able to take in their A-levels and so on and so forth and teachers found themselves increasingly under pressure what was also really, really interesting was nobody thinks about resources, right? So here we are talking about innovation in curriculum, but doing project-based learning requires a great deal of resource in the sense of you require the teachers to come together, you know, literature, science, maths, to come together, think about how to weave in elements of the curriculum into this project to make sure students are actually getting the, you know, getting the content that they're supposed to while working on these projects which is fine when you're a small school in your first year, you've got 20 students, but then as the numbers of students start to grow and staff numbers remains the same, yeah. it becomes incredibly hard to do that thing over and over again, right? So, and, and that's something people don't think about, which is why this whole innovation is hard idea, right? Um, because there's all of these other aspects that, that, that people don't think about. Well, and, and lots of other stakeholders that people don't think about because, it just strikes me, and, and from reading your thesis as well, like the, the the constant government focus and successive waves of government on on suggesting that we want to offer more choice to parents and students. So you can pick which kind of educational environment you go into based on what on your personal needs and all the rest of it. No. But that choice isn't really there if the ultimate test exactly. remains the same regardless of the environment. Because the problem is that the, the innovation for that to work, it doesn't just require student buy-in and parent buy-in for successive years, exactly. but also your broader society and employers. Because yeah, if, if employers are exactly. looking and comparing CVs and applications, how are they going to do that if they don't have an understanding of what this project-based learning has, has given exactly. 
that potential employee. Exactly. But an incredibly interesting experience, sort of learning about the foibles of policy making <laughs> and its enactment. <laughs> now, as you point out at various moments in your thesis, unlike university technical colleges or UTCs, yeah. studio schools were never intended to have a headline singular focus on the development of STEM skills. Yet, 75% of studio schools have a STEM specialism. Oh. I mean, you also write at length about STEM as an aspirational pathway. Why and how do you think STEM has dominated the language of aspiration within secondary education? I would say it's dominated the narrative of government policy, really. Um, and I think that's what's trickled down into secondary education. So, so there's a couple of things that, that I noticed. And I, I, I sort of traced the history of STEM. Like, if this goes way far back. Yeah, the, the history of we need STEM skills as early as the second half of the 19th century, you know, where there was this push in the United Kingdom um, that we need technical skills and we need to be ahead. And I say we, I'm sorry, it's because I'm thinking in the context of my thesis, the English government pushed for, you know, the UK government pushed for, um, you know, wanting to make sure they, they were ahead of France and Germany and the US and wanted to be technically more skilled and have more STEM and science graduates. And Successive governments have constantly sustained this narrative that we need more STEM skills to be ahead. We need it to make sure that we are better. This is what's going to help our development. This is what's going to help productivity. This is uh, what is going to seal our our might in, in the industrialized world, right? And and that's sort of the narrative. And, and it was really interesting sort of reading through that history. Um, and what I found fascinating was we've had a skill shortage in STEM for a really long time, <laughs> you know, for a really, really long time. Now, I'm not going to take away from the fact that there are sectors of STEM um, from an employee standpoint that definitely have a shortage of skill. I'm not going to take away from the fact that there's clearly um, a gender balance um, issue in some of the STEM subjects. However, there has been a sustained narrative that we just need more and more science and technology graduates. And yet, it just never seems to be enough, <laughs> right? So, so on the one hand, you have this government narrative that says, this is what's needed to make us the best. This is what's needed uh, to, to create jobs. This is what's needed to be more productive. You know, the industrial strategy that was published a few years ago, that was also focused on the need for more STEM skills. So when you, as someone in the general public, constantly hears that, I had parents say, yeah, but STEM is where the jobs are. STEM is where my child is going to get a job and is going to get a good pay. A lot of these students came from backgrounds where parents hadn't necessarily gone to university themselves or they, they were from um, sort of lower income backgrounds. This narrative of my child will get a job that's well paying, that will get him out of here was really, really big with these parents. And so this this idea that STEM was aspirational was, you know, sort of step, came from that. What you, what I understand that you've said is that uh, there is a hungry STEM skill monster at the center of our government that keeps eating STEM graduates and needs to be yeah. sort of, you know, the diet needs yeah. to be re replenished or the, the store cupboard needs to be constantly yeah. replenished, but that schools and universities and other sort of 
educational institutions have used that hunger yeah. um, as, a, as, a, as a marketing yeah. ploy. Come to our school, come to our university, we can get your, you or your child into that STEM market. Correct. And this was particularly, particularly obvious with the studio schools, because, I mean, given that they were trying to be so different, you can imagine getting parent buy-in was difficult for these schools, right? Mm -hmm. And and so this was a way that they could ensure that they could talk to parents about, hey, look, I've got this really big car company that's involved with me and your child will get the chance to go on an apprenticeship, you know, post completion of his GCSEs or will get the chance to work for six months with them. It was a real, real draw for parents to send their uh, children to to the studio schools because of that. And one thing I do want to add is, that that big STEM skills hungry monster hasn't taken into effect that a lot of academics have done the work to show that even though there's all of these STEM graduates, they don't always go into STEM jobs. So that that pipeline that keeps getting talked about by and and thankfully not a lot of people refer to it as a pipeline anymore. But for a while that was the narrative that that sustained a lot of government policy. That pipeline is not a, it's not a straight line. It's more like a game of mousetrap. <laughs> exactly. And so, so when you've had successive policies that have built that particular narrative, it's almost like, sure, yes, like I said, there are sectors that do have shortages of STEM skills. There are sectors that, you know, really do need those graduates and they aren't there. But that doesn't mean that everybody has to go be a STEM graduate, right? And those who are STEM graduates aren't necessarily going into STEM jobs. It's not a straightforward answer. And in fact, what what places like Alberta, which is my home province, have found is that by the time the STEM graduates are ready, the marketplace has changed. So you can set up, you know, a new program that's meant to train up people for a particular industry but all of a sudden that industry is no longer there no longer thriving yeah so that i think is one of one of the concerns about the pipeline and that's part of what the studio schools discovered really quickly as well because where they initially had been conceived of as as mirroring their their local labor market local labor markets change and shift right so when they're choosing disciplines to to offer STEM was a way to say you could go get a STEM job anywhere. You don't have to just get a job in your local in your local area anymore, right? So, so um, it's almost like it was used as um, as a marketing tool. Like, and tool is a very harsh word, I feel, but it really was used as a tool to to get people through the door. If if we talk about a pipeline of STEM graduates, meaning university graduates Ooh. into STEM jobs, then it's just another delayed form of siloing. Right. It's saying you started this conveyor belt, therefore you end up it's A to B, you end up in position B. And that's not how how human development works either, because when you're in university, you're you know, legally an adult, but you're still discovering how you learn, what you like, you know, what you feel your purpose should be, all of those kinds of things. I just feel very strongly that the education system in this country is almost at every stage trying to say okay here's your pathway stay on it do not deviate stay in your lane 
I mean, uh, stay in your lane. Exactly. Exactly, Laura. I, I think that's a, that's a great way to put it. Anecdotally, me and N of one, if that was the case, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you in front of you. You know, if, the, if it was really like if there was this pipeline. Through your history of secondary education in England, you note that, quote, the emphasis on certain subjects versus others embedded within accountability measures, be it in 1862 or 2016, has also led to a narrowed curricular focus. And I think this comparison between the 19th century and today is of real interest to LitSciPod, not least because science started out as the poor cousin if not the dirty technical cousin, in fact, um, in the sort of original two cultures debate. Now, in 2019, the publication Anxious Times, Medicine and Modernity in 19th Century Britain came out of the University of Oxford's Diseases of Modern Life project. And it has a wonderful chapter on the introduction of the payment by results system, um, which was introduced into schools in 1862. And the chapter's called Knocking Some Sense Into Them, Over Pressure Debates and the Education of Mind and Body. So Melissa Dixon explores the 19th century legacy of school stress for young people. That, quote, as the concept of market values was carried into the social spaces of the schoolroom and the testing environment, 19th century anxieties surrounding fatigue and nervous exhaustion shifted perceptibly to include the figure of the overwrought schoolchild. With all of our different schools today, including studio schools, beleaguered by league tables or whatever we now call them, I'm out of date. Where do you think we are now? What do you think we've learned, if anything? (laughs) And is this pitting of subjects against each other always going to disadvantage our young people? Oh, I love the question. Um, So I am going to add something to that. I think... One of the things that we forget, it's not just about the beleaguered school child, but also the teachers, because that 1862 code was very much, um, pupils would take an annual exam. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Yeah, right. Focused on, at that time, what was the three R's, which was reading, writing, and arithmetic. And the results would essentially determine how much money government would give you, which ultimately would determine teacher salaries, Mm. right? So teachers as well were under this intense pressure to make sure students were doing well in those exams because it would make a difference to that. Is this sounding familiar? Very. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we find ourselves in an accountability system now. You know, I mentioned the EBAC. I mentioned the fact that the pupils have to uh, obtain an A to C in at least their English and maths, and otherwise they have to retake exams. I've mentioned the fact that certain subjects aren't part of this English baccalaureate, so schools just don't offer it. So really, the accountability systems are in a way disenfranchising students, because Catherine, to come back to your point, If we are talking about more choice, your accountability system is in fact taking away that choice, right? And for some students, these really specialized schools are where they they might thrive. Now, I can give you an example of one student, and and he really has stayed with me, where he, because I asked him, you know, why did you choose to come to a studio school? And and how do you feel now now that you're here? You know, do you like it? 
And he was he described basically being not being taken seriously at his previous school. He was constantly labeled a naughty kid because he didn't do well in his subjects. Whereas at this school, because it was smaller, because it was subjects he was interested in, because it was a lot more focused on practical hands-on learning, you know, he was he was working with a company. He himself was taking the initiative to go talk to teachers about work. It was the sense of the sense of mutual respect between the teacher and the child. I was going to say context matters. Yes, yes, it really does, right? And if you're fostering that environment of mutual respect, right, that's that's built on on giving real choice to students. It's it's sort of what I argue. There's there's a push to actually developing that that whole child and thinking about skills beyond just that academic learning, right? Because these these children are essentially the ones that are going to go into the world, become adults, and you know go into the workforce. So it's about developing more than just how well did you do in your English and maths. So yes, Catherine, I actually think as long as we have as strict an accountability system as there exists, I feel like we are going to keep running into these issues of schools trying to do things differently, being forced to change their ways, and then ultimately disenfranchising the child that they're wanting to to help. Well, and because the English and maths has inveigled its way into further education as well, mm-hmm. this idea that you've actually chosen to go there because you wish to to pursue a vocational education. So you've gone to, to do, you know, beauty mm-hmm. therapy or car maintenance or whatever it is. But if as you sign on and it feels like a trick because a lot of them don't actually realize when they're at that open evening and signing up to their course if you don't already have a level four in your um grade four sorry in your english and maths then you are automatically enrolled into english and maths and then you keep having to take it until either you get the four or you age out at 19. so you'd see kids who would would tell you i failed this five times already and what do you do with that? I, I absolutely agree with you. And this whole, and I'm glad I'm glad you mentioned grade four and grade five. Sorry, when I started my thesis, we were still in A to C world and making that transition to, <laughs> to the grade four and five. And so when I talk about my thesis, everybody has referenced A's and C's. Well, it just is in, innovating terminology so quickly. But this is the thing as well, right? There's got to be policy exhaustion. There is policy exhaustion and teachers talked about it. When you're constantly dealing with policy change after policy change after policy change, it, it just keeping up with it, you know, sort of takes away from the profession. You know, one of the things I found was the, the teachers at these studio schools were some teachers who'd actually left teaching completely and had come back because these schools were trying to do things differently and, and not not just functioning as what was the what was the word sausage factories churning out exactly the same student and I'm quoting here that that that's not my not not my my personal opinion necessarily but that you know it was really interesting to see that the teachers who'd given up on the profession were coming back to to schools like this I think the Guardian has recently done um research or reported on research showing that is it one in four teachers intend to leave the profession by 2025 so there's going to be a shortage of skilled teachers (laughs) well no there'll be plenty of skilled teachers they just won't be working in education yep (laughs) 
one of the things we didn't even talk about was, you know, in this era of creating choice, government policy has also brought in um, the creation of multi-academy trusts, right, which then brings everybody under this umbrella of governance. And again, schools like studio schools had to work very hard to maintain their identity rather than function like every other school in the multi-academy trust. Some of the school leaders were were very honest when they shared that, you know, they had to really fight their corner. And, you know, there'd be threats of taking away funding from the school if certain subjects weren't offered. They had to work really hard to make sure that if they were the school offering the vocational options, it wouldn't lead to streaming of students from the other schools in the multi-academy trust that this is the school for the dumb kids or this is the school for the for the kids who are naughty, right? So they had to work very hard to say, no, we are trying to develop skills in certain subjects. We are trying to give students, you know, these employability skills. It is not the second class school within the multi-academy trust. And, you know, there were multiple studio schools that were incredibly honest about this, this battle that they had to fight for to ensure they had the, the resources that they needed to do what they wanted to do. I was really struck by a quotation that, that came up a couple of times in, in your thesis around, you know, when they write the history of studio schools, the word compromise is going to have to come up a lot. And I thought, the more I read about it, the more I thought, but also studio schools have been so outrageously compromised by the top-down policy shifts as you say, innovation is hard because it only works with the agreement and, and the kind of encouragement and support of several parties. And it feels like that's what dropped away quite quickly. Yeah. And it's really interesting because when studio schools were initially conceived, you know, New Labour was in power and, you know, they were they were trying to encourage collaboration through the various schemes and initiatives that they had between schools, you know, um, 14 to 19 partnerships and things like that. But at the same time, they were also encouraging competition between schools. So it's almost like the left hand wasn't talking to the right hand. And there's only a finite number of young people to go around at the end of the day, right? So there's only a finite number of 14 to 19 year olds that exist in the population. When you've got this idea that schools should collaborate, but at the same time, they're competing for each student because funding follows the student. And if student goes to another school, you lose funding. How? How are you going to foster collaboration? You know, so so it's it's almost it really is this case of the left hand not talking to the right hand. As I'm starting to to find my voice as a young researcher, I'm starting to really find the areas I'm interested in working on. You know, one of the things um, I realized uh, is I've had a very English focus, you know, the, and, and I'm particularly really interested in how technical and vocational education is conceptualized in India, you know, how that intersection of the education and employment works in India. Um, so the Center for Skills, Knowledge and Organizational Performance, which is the Scope Research Center, that's, so that's where I'm a research officer. You know, we're currently involved in a piece of work uh, that's looking across country, across seven countries, to to understand how technical and vocational education is conceptualized in different countries. And it's amazing. I've learned so much about my country and how education is being sort of 
pushed and innovated versus where it was and you know how societal perception is such a big barrier that has to be overcome that I can already start to see parallels with what I found in my thesis so so yes it's interesting how as a young researcher and this is for you know for everybody who's sort of finishing up their defaults you may not necessarily continue to only work on that particular area you might find yourself being interested in other areas and I feel like that's okay felt like I just needed to say that to all the other young researchers out there (laughs) that's fantastic thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your research so generously with us it's been fascinating So the excerpt that I'm going to read to you today is a poem called B that's been written by Sarah Kay. It gained a lot of popularity due to a TED talk, and it's when I first learned about it. Uh, when I was organizing my TEDx events, my sister sent it to me and it's stuck with me since then. And I feel like this is poignant as I now have a daughter and this is the talk that actually inspired me to start getting involved in uh, more policy related and uh, really wanting to change the world. So um, here goes nothing. I'm not going to do it half the justice that Sarah Kay did, uh, but here goes. If I should have a daughter instead of mom, she's going to call me point B because that way she knows that no matter what happens, at least she can find her way to me. And I'm going to paint solar systems on the back of her hands. So she has to learn the entire universe before she can say, oh, I know that like the back of my hand. And she's going to learn that this life will hit you hard in the face. Wait for you to get back up just so it can kick you in the stomach. But getting the wind knocked out of you is the only way to remind you, remind your lungs how much they like the taste of air. There is hurt here that cannot be fixed by band-aids or poetry. So the first time she realizes that Wonder Woman isn't coming, I'll make sure she knows she doesn't have to wear the cape all by herself. Because no matter how wide you stretch your fingers, your hands will always be too small to catch all the pain you want to heal. Believe me, I've tried. And baby, I'll tell her, don't keep your nose up in the air like that. I know that trick, I've done it a million times. You're just smelling for smoke so you can... Follow the trail back to a burning house so you can find the boy who lost everything in the fire to see if you can save him. Or else find the boy who lit the fire in the first place to see if you can change him. But I know she will anyway, so instead I'll always keep an extra supply of chocolate and rain boots nearby. Because there's no heartbreak that chocolate can't fix. Okay, there are a few that chocolate can't fix. But what's what the, that's what the rain boots are for. Because rain will wash everything away if you let it. I want her to look at the world through the underside of a glass bottom boat, to look through a microscope at the galaxies that exist on the pinpoint of a human mind, because that's the way my mom taught me, that there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this, my mama said, when you open your hands to catch and wind up with only blisters and bruises, when you step out of the phone booth and try to fly, and the very people you want to save are the ones standing on your cape, when your boots will fill with rain and you'll be up to your knees in disappointment. And those are the very days you have all the more reason to say thank you. Because there's nothing more beautiful than the way the ocean refuses to stop kissing the shoreline, no matter how many times it's sent away. You will put the wind in winsome, loonsome. You will put the star in starting over and over. And no matter how many landmines erupt in a minute, be sure your mind lands on the beauty of this funny place called life. 
And yes, on a scale from one to over-trusting, I am pretty damn naive. But I wanted to know that this world is made of sugar. It can crumble so easily, but don't be afraid to stick your tongue out and taste it. Baby, I'll tell her, remember, your mama is a warrior and your papa is a warrior. And you are the girl with small hands and big eyes who never stops asking for more. Remember that good things come in threes and so do bad things. Always apologize when you've done something wrong, but don't you ever apologize for the way your eyes refuse to stop shining. Your voice is small, but don't ever stop singing. And when they finally hand you heartache, when they slip war and hatred under your door and offer you handouts on street corners of cynicism and defeat, you tell them that they really ought to meet your mother. We've come to that special moment in the episode where there is time for some final words. Admonishment. Oligoptic. And those are our final words. Thanks for joining us for the third of our third series of Lit Sci Podcasts. We hope you'll join us next time. And if you like what you've heard and want to hear more, or if you'd like to join in on the conversation, please follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at LitSciPod. Don't forget to tweet using the hashtag LitSciPod. You can even email us at litsipod at gmail.com.